Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast, where we rebroadcast some of the best sessions of Maytree's popular program. My name is Elizabeth McIsaac. I'm the president of Maytree, a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite experts from the nonprofit or corporate sector to share five practical ideas on a key management issue facing nonprofit organizations today. In this session, originally recorded on September 28, 2021, we asked Nina Gupta to share five good ideas about creating a successful hybrid workplace. Well, many of you are dialing in from across Canada. I'm speaking to you from Toronto, and I'd like to begin today's session by acknowledging the land where we live and work and recognizing our responsibilities and relationships where we are. As we are meeting and connecting virtually today, I encourage you to acknowledge the place you occupy. I am, and Maitri is, on the historical territory of the Huron-Wendat, Hattoon, Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the New Credit Indigenous Peoples. This territory is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Ojibwe and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the lands and resources around the Great Lakes. COVID-19 has forced employers and employees to adapt to a virtual workplace. More than one and a half years into the pandemic, many employees don't want to go back to the old ways of working, and employers are looking to find ways to create a hybrid workplace where their staff can work in the office as well as from home. In this session, Nina Gupta will present her five good ideas about some of the legal, compliance, and human resource issues you may need to consider to make your hybrid workplace a true success. Nina Gupta is a partner at Gowling WLG LLP, where she has a broad employment and human rights practice. She's also co-chair of the firm's Diversity and Inclusion Council. She has been frequently recognized for her work, including the 2017 Zenith Awards, recognizing women in the legal profession, and the Queen Elizabeth II's Golden Jubilee Awards for her service to the legal profession. It's now my absolute pleasure to welcome Nina. Nina, thank you for joining us, and over to you for Five Good Ideas. Well, thank you very much. I always uh, laugh. There's actually a joke that the reason why people become lawyers is that they're not particularly good at math. So that is definitely true of me because I tried to limit my presentation to five good ideas and then realized that I couldn't do it. And so I call my presentation five-ish good ideas. I will start with a bit of a legal disclaimer. I am a lawyer called to the province of Ontario's bar, but I'm not giving you legal advice. There is a legal underpinning to many of the ideas we're going to discuss today. And if you're looking to implement things or you have specific legal questions, I really encourage you to reach out to your lawyer. I really think that your lawyer should be like your best friend, somebody you trust to keep secrets and give you good advice and link you to good resources. And if there's something specific you want to reach out to me at the end of the presentation, I've left some contact information and also some good resources. What are my five-ish good ideas for a successful remote workplace? Some of these ideas, honestly, are pretty self-evident. I'm claiming no creativity. The first good idea is talk to your people, survey your people. The second idea, which may not be as self-evident, is review your physical workplace. And if people are working in a hybrid or remote space, you really actually have to review your employees' workspace. 
lots of ideas about that. One thing that's very controversial, but is definitely on the front pages of our newspapers in Ontario is deciding on a vaccination policy for your in-person workplace, and then drafting a remote workplace policy. So those are my five big ideas. I have some other ideas and some resources that if we have time, we will definitely talk about. So first of all, survey your people. Ask your workplace about return to work. And this is really important, opening up a conversation. Now, just because you ask the question doesn't necessarily mean you have to comply with everybody's wish list. But it's really important to understand what the interest is in returning to the workplace. And what we have found, even in our own workplace, but working with other clients, is that there's really divergence in the workplace. There is a small minority, and I would say about 15% of jobs where people can do it remotely, like lawyers and accountants and actuaries and consultants who really actually miss going to the office. And I would put myself in that category. There's a much larger group, probably over half your workplace maybe even 60 or 70% of your workplace that really is looking for a hybrid. And hybrid is also to a certain extent code for flex time or flexibility. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And finally, there's people who never want to darken the doorstep of your workplace. Some of them simply want to work from their dining rooms. Others may wish to be global warriors and go on a beach in Costa Rica or a Airbnb in Greece. And as long as they're doing their work, they feel that they should be able to work remotely from whenever and wherever. Now, there are some issues with these global nomads, and and I don't know that we'll have a chance to talk about the tax and insurance complexities of global nomads, but it's something that you should think about. Some questions you need to really understand is, what do people really like about working from home? And what do they miss about working from the office? And what is their preferred optimal mix? You don't have to give them everything they ask for, but it's really important to understand where your people are. I am fundamentally someone who is not lazy and do not like reinventing the wheel. And so I've offered you some resources that can inspire you to create a proper survey for your own workplace. And I think it's useful to communicate to your workplace what people are thinking. You need to be sensitive, of course, to the fact that some jobs probably can't be done remotely. It's very difficult to be a clinic worker, seeing patients, perhaps a receptionist, a counselor that has a large population that does not feel comfortable with technology. But to the extent that jobs can be successfully transitioned remotely, and we've had an 18-month experiment, so you know what can and cannot be done, you should really be thinking about how your new workplace is going to look like. And just in case you think this is just my idea, full credit to Sue Bingham who from the Harvard Business Review, who essentially said soliciting employees' input on your hybrid work is a key component to making it work. The other thing that you need to look at is your physical environment. In Ontario, we anticipate having limitations on capacity, six feet distancing requirements for at least the next quarter, if not the next six months. 
And this leads to real issues about what does your workplace look like? How are you going to space your workstations? I know that in the tech sector where I often work, it used to be a pride of point that people would work on what was really like three or four employees working around what is effectively a dining room table. Well, that day is gone. How are you going to deal with spacing requirements? I put in some suggestions. Again, nothing particularly creative, but useful. Staggered start times put less pressure on elevators and staircases. Reduction of capacity. Having reduction of workforce in the office. Some workplaces I see have done things like Cohort A will be in the office on Monday, Wednesday, uh, Friday, cohort B, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then switching them around the next week. It could be week one or week two. Again, trying to keep up with the requirements of social distancing. The other thing that I recommend is increasing the number of hand sanitizing stations throughout the workplace so that you again have more opportunities to comply with public health requirements. Some workplaces have increased their cleaning, not just in the evenings, but during the day. Again, there's a certain amount of comfort that employees get from seeing the thorough cleaning, especially like spaces like washrooms, where even though to date, touch points are less likely to be a source of infection than aerosols or breathing in the virus, again, seeing somebody clean workstations, clean bathrooms and touch points makes a real psychological difference. One thing we haven't necessarily talked about as much is ventilation. Ventilation is clearly a key component. And we hear stories of people literally living maybe in apartments, but they share a ventilation system, getting COVID effectively through the ventilation system, even though they've maintained the six feet apart. You may have to consult with your landlord. Many in the not-for-profit sector don't own their own buildings or may have to add portable ventilation. Although you'll see public health saying, oh, open windows, I haven't worked in an office where I could open the windows for about 30 years. And so that advice isn't particularly useful. And we may have to look at things like artificial HEPA filtration in order to increase ventilation and increase air purification. I'm not purporting to be an HVAC specialist. I'm encouraging you to consult with your landlord regarding how good the ventilation is. There are uh, filters that can be backfilled into existing systems, some existing systems that may help. Part of this is what people call hygiene theater, which I think is a disrespectful term for reassuring your workplace that you are taking every step that is reasonable to keep them safe, because people don't feel safe. And they'd be insane to feel safe when 27,000 Canadians have died and the death toll from COVID depending on what article you read, is like at four and a half million to possibly as high as 18 million worldwide. So people need reassurance. And that's a human need that we as employers can help fulfill if they see us look at the physical environment, the physical space. 
But let's assume for a moment that all of us are really interested in having a bit more flexibility in our life, giving our workers more flexibility. It means that they're likely working from home. What is that going to ask you to do? Well, working from home is not a panacea. I've been stuck in my dining room for, well, far too long. And it requires reliable internet. And reliable internet is a luxury. And I didn't realize that until I moved to my present location, which is a farm just about three kilometers from the city borders. As soon as I went those three kilometers, I actually lost access to city internet and was now on satellite or rural internet. What a difference that made. Somebody in the chat is putting power. Uh, yep, reliable power is a huge privilege. And I can tell you, my nightmare scenario is doing one of these seminars with X number of 100 people on it and realizing that Hydro Ontario had just ended and I now was on battery backup and trying to use internet from my hotspot on my phone. And I can tell you that required a level of tech expertise that I didn't think I have and kind of muddled through. Don't want to do it again. I mean, we start talking about things as simple as laptops, or you can have docking stations because unplugging and replugging and get, you know, your whole setup is such a nuisance. We're talking about chairs because I can tell you my kitchen chair and my dining room chair wasn't good enough. Desk, ergonomic mouse, mice, keyboards. And then this setup that I now have which is my headset, my camera, my microphone, none of which I really had when we started working from home on March 16th, in which I've learned, yeah, I had a great setup because anytime I presented remotely, which was indeed rare because most lawyers present in person, law society events are in person, HR events are in person, it got us out of the office, it was one of the joys of meeting people. But none of the setup that I had on a day-to-day -day basis was good enough. And there is an economic cost to all of this. And I know this sounds like a, it is a first world problem, but if you're going to be working over Zoom or other video technology, having a clear, crisp image of who you're talking to, being able to hear them as if they're really in your room, really psychologically makes a huge difference. So these are some of the things that I don't think we thought about pre-pandemic. And really, we do have to. As a lawyer, though, I think of one thing. And one of the things that causes me nightmares is confidentiality. My work is extraordinarily confidential. People confide in me things as delicate as sexual harassment complaints, employees who are transitioning from one gender to another? And what if the only place to work in a small apartment is in the dining room where the children are doing homework and the spouse is also working? How are you going to deal with confidentiality? And certainly in my work, there are certain things that have to be printed out. If I'm going to be proofreading a large document, presentation, grant application, sometimes I print it out. That's, that can be very confidential, have confidential financials. How are you going to dispose of shredding? My inexpert solution was literally to have a confidential shredding box, which I then schlepped to the office on weekends and put in the confidential shredding pile that we had. But is there another way that's going to work? 
And the tools that worked at the beginning of the pandemic or even at the end of the year were actually not adequate as we started to do more and more. And so having routine check-ins, we read about like checking in for people's morale, checking in on workload, checking in on how they're feeling, but adding a question, do you have the tools you need? Is there anything else you actually need to work is a really important question. I'll give you a trivial example, or but it wasn't so trivial as one of our law clerks was also being full-time mother and full-time employee and couldn't get out to buy paper to print out or needed a printer. So those are the kinds of, I would say, logistical nightmares some of your employees are facing. And it's always a good idea to check in. Is everything working? Is there, and IT has been crazy busy, but it's still a good idea for managers to do that. I want to congratulate somebody who's saying, how do you protect the privacy of employees when they are using their personal cell phone like I do for business? And you don't necessarily want all clients to have that. Is there going to be some kind of uh, virtual voice over internet phone solution that you're going to use for your workplace? I've given you some resources at the end of this slide. The CCOHS, which is an organization I often refer people to, is the Canadian Centre for Occupational Health and Safety. They've done some excellent work on COVID-19, but they have, a, and I love the phrase telework. How quaint does that sound, telework? But in any event, that phrase was used when we were all using phone modems, I'm sure some decades, perhaps the last millennium. But they have some excellent hints on ergonomics that I would commend to you as a takeaway. My fourth idea, and I don't know if it's particularly a big idea or not, is I think you're going to have to face the question of your vaccination policy, at least in Ontario and definitely in the GTA. I find it very interesting that Dr. Davila, the Medical Officer of Health for Toronto, strongly recommended that each workplace actually have a vaccination policy. And she had an example of a vaccination policy there, which was essentially vaccinated, provide proof of vaccination or do education and perhaps a rapid test. I'll talk a little bit about vaccination policies later. But what's very interesting to me is as of September 18th, we had about 80% of the population, the adult population or population 12 and over who are fully vaccinated. And if you look at that as a population in Canada, 70% of the entire population is vaccinated. So the vaccinated group are definitely in a majority. And the reality is vaccinated people are much more comfortable if others vaccinated too. Essentially, there's a sense of, well, if I as a vaccinated person vaccinated myself for my own health, my family health and the health of my community, I want everybody else around me to be vaccinated too. And what are you in the workplace going to do it? Now, some workplaces don't have a choice. In Ontario, certain segments of the healthcare, daycare, long-term care sector have to be vaccinated. In Quebec, there's a similar policy for similar sectors. 
But what if you're not, what if you're a law firm like us? What is your vaccination policy going to be? And this is, you know, a very controversial question because up until this point uh, in time, in general, in living memory, I'm getting old, so I've got over, you know, 30 years of work experience, your vaccination status, unless you were a healthcare worker, was completely a private, personal medical choice. And now employers who may not be in a medical or quasi medical setting are asking difficult questions regarding, well, what is your vaccination policy? What is your vaccination plan? I don't think too many of us, however, are going to be able to be neutral about this. The expectation, especially if you're going to expect people to come back to an in-person workplace, is going to be for at least the 80% of the adult population that are vaccinated, that you're taking care of that issue for the rest of us. So on your vaccination policy, and this is not a vaccination policy presentation, is you have to start with what are you legally required to do? And the most common policy is what I call a vaccination or test, rapid antigen test. And this is financially feasible only because the government of Canada has funded free rapid antigen tests, and they are usually distributed, at least in Ontario, through the local chambers of commerce. Interestingly, do not have to be a chamber of commerce member to get the free kits. You just have to be someone operating a business in the geographic area of that particular chamber of commerce. And the testing that's required is usually two times a week. A refusal to vaccine, if there is a reason for it, and we'll talk a little bit about it, what the reasons could be, but a refusal to subject to vaccine or a refusal to get a test may well be, and I say may well be, grounds for suspension without pay or termination. But if you're going to do that, please consult your lawyer. Remember how I said your lawyer should be your best friend? Never, never uh, take a negative step against an employee on the grounds of a vaccination, on the grounds of a failure to test without talking to your lawyer. I am anticipating to be busy for the next, oh, I don't know, one to three years because of human rights complaints relating to vaccination or test or vaccination policies. There are some vaccine education resources if you want to encourage people to be vaccined. I like the vaccine or test policy because at least it allows in most workplaces an individual to be able to work. But I recognize that other workplaces may have a preference for a strong mandatory vaccination policy. Under the human rights laws of Canada, and I want to exempt Quebec out a little bit because they have a, a very interesting and different regime. But in the English-speaking common law provinces, exemptions typically are limited to strict medical exemptions or a sincerely held religious belief or creed. Now, what are the medical grounds? It should be evidenced by a healthcare practitioner within the scope of practice. Now, what does that mean, scope of practice? So scope of practice is that you're essentially regulated to do a certain kind of work. Earlier on 
in this pandemic, I did see some notes from chiropractors saying that this individual ought not to be vaccinated. Now, I can't speak for all the provinces, but in Ontario, the College of Chiropractors has made it very clear that chiropractors are not licensed to deal with immunology or vaccination. So chiropractors ought not to be giving notes about whether someone can or cannot be vaccinated on medical grounds. So really, you want a doctor, a nurse practitioner, and possibly a registered nurse to provide a note. And if you've read the Globe and Mail or the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario website, the Ontario Medical Association, the Canadian Medical Association. It's very clear to me that they're looking at narrow grounds and the grounds are allergies to the particular vaccine ingredients in the particular vaccines that we're using now, or a possible response to the first vaccine dose that was very adverse and therefore they don't want to do a second vaccine. Those are real. I want to assure you that I know of people in my own circle who are not anti-vaxxers who have had reactions and so they were not able to take a second vaccine. Uh, Some experts do not consider the rapid antigen test to be a good substitute for full vaccination, but it is a choice that many employers are making. And one thing I would ask is that if you're thinking about some kind of vaccination policy, as you hire new people, not existing people, new people, or if you're promoting people, make those vaccination terms explicit. You know, so just like employment might be contingent on proving that I can work legally in Canada, that I have a law degree from a recognized uh, university, that I am called to the bar in Ontario, you might have a term saying that I am fully vaccinated. Creed is sometimes very difficult. You are allowed to ask questions about, well, what is the basis? You know, I'm a member of a certain religious group. Our belief is X system. I actually, my precedent, ask for a note, you know, if possible, from a a leader in that community. Beware of those, uh, what I call instant notes. Uh, There are some churches that if you pay them, and sometimes even for free, We'll say you're a member of this church in some city in the States or somewhere else. And our belief is that vaccination is wrong. I mean, I, I think you can push a little bit on the sincerity of that belief, which came first. I don't want to have a vaccine and I'm looking for a justification or is the person a member of that religion and really sincerely believes that to exercise their religion, they ought not to be vaccinated. Then you have to draft your remote work policy, and it's a work in progress. You have to think about, I mean, this is really hard, but who's going to be eligible to work from home? Are you going to have some core dates, times, events where people just have to be in the office? I mentioned the idea of groups, sometimes to create cohesion, but also for physical uh, spacing. And will you have bonuses for those who come to work regularly and physically? Are you going to incentivize showing up to work, which seems to be such a weird idea, especially if you have a pre-pandemic worldview. And that may raise, at least in Ontario, pay equity issues, because you may be paying somebody who's coming into work more than people who are working from home. And is that justified under pay equity? You may have to revise your pay equity plan. 
The, the one thing that I would remind you is remote work isn't always what employees, people say, I want to work hybrid. It's not just the right to work from your dining room. It's also the right to have flexibility. Maybe I can show up at 7.30, work till 8.30, get, you know, sort of deal with my morning emails, get my kids out the door, work from 9.30 to 3.30, and then finish off my day after supper after seven or eight o'clock. Maybe that's what your employees need to know. So are you going to have core hours? How are you going to manage that? I want to give you a cautionary note, and I want to give you a cautionary note because this sector is female dominated. And I worry as a female professional, whether hybrid work will actually harm women's career progression. So you've done all these great things. It's not one and done. You really need to resurvey the workplace to figure out how things are working and fine tune your policy. And I also have to remind you that all the planning in the world will not be perfect because people's needs change rapidly. We've had already school start, start at the beginning of September. We already have two employees who were coming back to work who now have to work from home because their child's class shut down. And they also another one has an elder care issue. So we continue to have that duty to accommodate, but we also have to realize the pandemic is not over. One other thing, please, mental health is tough. I am congenitally a cheerful person, I have found the last 18 months tough too. One in five Canadian adults 18 and over are screening positive for at least one of three mental disorders. That's huge. So invest in mental health, your people need you to take care of them. And there's the other thing, and I know it's hard in the not-for-profit sector, but one in five Canadians are planning on quitting unless there's a pay raise. That's a scary thought to every employer. And if you can't do a pay raise, some of the other considerations like flex time and hybrid work or permanent work from home may be things that you can offer that help essentially incentivize people to stay at your workplace rather than go elsewhere. I did want to leave you with some resources which are in the slides. Um, Gowlings has a free COVID insights. I invite you to subscribe. I wrote an article about the pros and cons and legal risks of mandatory vaccination. I thought you would be interested in Stats Canada. In 2016, 4% of the population worked predominantly from home. In 2021, 30% of the workforce worked from home. That's a huge. And a shout out to the Ontario government. They, they have created an upgraded COVID-19 safety plan tool that is really easy to use. So if you created a COVID safety plan maybe in early 2020, and you're looking to upgrade it a little bit, this might be a great resource for you. Okay. That was absolutely fabulous. You're not just bad at math, but you're also an overachiever. So many good ideas, so many great links and resources. Um, I was taking notes like crazy, and I know everyone else was as well. So we've got a bunch of questions of some of the early questions that go back to your first ideas around physical environment. And somebody asked 
uh, a question around, do landlords have a responsibility to make sure ventilation complies with public health circumstances? Is that coming? Um, and how do we look at who's responsible for what in that context? I'm not aware of a legislative requirement for landlords to retrofit their buildings to meet some kind of COVID-19 safety standard. Uh, sometimes in the lease, there will be a language about the landlord will have you know, a building that is properly maintained and fit for human occupancy. But understand that landlords want to keep you as a tenant. This is an era where there's a lot of space out there and people don't want to lose good tenants. So having a conversation about what can be done in cooperation with your landlord is often very effective. Somebody asked an interesting question around people with accessibility needs. So do you have any thoughts on how the shift back to the office, even in a hybrid model, may impact those with accessibility needs that may have been hired while the office was fully remote? Uh, Pre-pandemic, we all know that many people were met with, that's not possible, only to find out it really was. Is there anything unique or different? I think we still have, the old rules still apply, Elizabeth. We still have a duty to accommodate. I really think that, we should look at those questions one by one, you know, maybe we make an exception and that person only comes in for certain kinds of meetings. I'm not a real fan of a permanent remote employee. I think that those employees lose out on opportunities and career progression. We are a herd species after all. And so if somebody is like on a zoom herd somewhere away, I think they lose out. But you know what, we should be flexible. If you have a good employee who has a real inability to navigate the subway system in Toronto and come to work on a daily basis, and has been doing a great job in your accounts receivable, accounts payable, maybe that's a job that you decide to make permanently remote. What I do think is that we have to upskill our frontline managers. That was one of the ideas, uh, Elizabeth, that got cut because I realized, you know, you might be able to sneak an eight and pretend you miscounted, but when you get to 10, that's really hard that you are still at five. And so, but one of the hardest things I think for frontline managers, and I actually count myself because I have a team reporting into me and I'm sort of not a big manager at the firm, not interested, don't like it, but I am a frontline manager. It has taken me more time to check in on my people. In the good old days, I'd see somebody walk in and I could see, you know, one person whistling with their coffee cup. Okay, they're doing okay. I'd see somebody else dragging themselves from the subway. Hmm, that person's not doing so well. So in within about three minutes, I could tell where my, you know, team was. I can't do that when I'm remote. I actually have to call them, you know, every day or every other day just to check in. That takes time and that takes mental energy. Being that mental health support for the one in five or quite frankly, all of us that are struggling. And so we have to upskill our frontline managers to make that remote workplace really work for that individual who maybe we decide, stay at home. You know what? It's going to work out. We'll figure it out. It's sort of a related question, not exactly the same, but how do we keep team morale and collaborative relationships up during a hybrid environment? And then also recognizing that if there's some people that are going back to work and others who are staying, how do we build those bridges? You've described a little bit of the additional management touch, but are there other things that you're seeing as good practice? What I'm actually seeing is, and you guys are probably better at this than I am because lawyers are not known as being fun people, but actually scheduling time to having discussions that have nothing to do with work. 
And so we did a bring your pet to the screen day, bring your kid to the screen day, bring your uh, kids artwork to the screen day, like things that have nothing to do with work to remind each other that we're still human and present for each other as human beings. To the extent anybody feels comfortable and no social pressure, small outdoor gatherings, I know the season is about to end, but small outdoor gatherings, you know, maybe it's finding an activity, you know, in one of the parks, and say, I'm going to be there, if you want to join me, no pressure. But you know, it might be good to see somebody, not everyone's going to be comfortable with that. I have colleagues that literally, they have pretty well not left their house except to go on medical appointments. That's it. That's okay. I understand that. I respect that. But others might feel a little bit more carefree, especially now that they are vaccinated. It doesn't have to be, in my view, it does not have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be fancy or gimmicky. It's just an opportunity to grab a cup of coffee and do something on a human level. And I think that speaks a bit to the next question as well, but I'm going to, I'm going to share it because um, there's more to what this person is asking. I'm seeing a divergence among my staff. The four existing staff who have worked together in the office for many years are older. They have their own homes. They're more inclined to work at home largely and they're supporting this facilitates our retention. So we're, we're letting them do it. The three new hires this month, all younger in rental accommodation seem to want to be in the office due to lack of suitable workspace. They want the environment. And this is, this has to be a, a recruitment consideration going forward. I wonder how best to manage this new dynamic so new hires benefit from the in-person relationships with existing staff while giving existing staff more flexibility. So We are facing that all over. So whoever asked the question, that is the question, right? Here I am in my lovely dining room. My son no longer lives, you know, he's sort of off somewhere. I mean, I've got lots of space. What if I were living in a 400 square foot efficiency apartment in downtown Toronto, which seemed wonderful when I could go to parks and, you know, theaters, not so wonderful if I'm going to work there 24, 7, 365, actually 500 and odd, some odd days. And I think you're going to have to grapple with expectations that people are comfy in the dining room like I am to say, we need you back in the office. Our expectation is, you know, three days a week or two days a week, we're going to do meetings Tuesdays and Thursday, we're going to have core hours, I realize you're comfy out there. I realize Maitri has shared my materials. But if possible, I saw a great, totally funny return to work video that I would love to share with the audience. I did share it on my LinkedIn profile. But it's essentially about how all of us are like the kids in kindergarten who don't want to go to school that first day. And I think we're all there. You know, change is hard when you get to a certain age. And I am certainly in that age. But I think you're going to have to say, look, one of the things we have senior people for and we pay them a little bit more is to be a good mentor. And you need to be here at least twice a week so our young people learn from you. And Zoom is great, but it's not as great as sitting over a cup of coffee and learning. Absolutely. Now we're going to get in some vaccination questions, as I'm sure you expected. I did. So what if you're a small organization that requires vaccination for in-person work or for meetings, but you'll adjust the role of staff who choose not to vaccinate, so they're not attending any in-person meetings, and they're continuing to work remotely? It's going to be obvious to others what the reason is. How do you explain to the others why their role has been adjusted while still keeping their medical information private? 
unless you are actually a healthcare practitioner, I'm less worried in Ontario about keeping the information private. You don't have to say John Doe or Nina isn't vaccinated. That isn't what you need to say. It's just going to be, this is how it's going to be. And if people draw the inference that Jane and Nina aren't vaccinated, in Ontario, we have very weak privacy protections. I would caution people who might be listening in from Quebec, Alberta, BC, or who are federally regulated to actually check the answer with their lawyer for those jurisdictions, because there might be some nuances there. Elizabeth, that question actually raises a different question, if I could, which is the perceived unfairness. So you have the people who are vaccinated, who are then saying, well, I'm being punished because I am being forced to come to work. And the people who are not being vaccinated, and some of those people, a minority of those people cannot be vaccinated. And we need to be clear about that. They have legitimate reasons why they cannot be vaccinated are being rewarded by being able to work from home, even though you don't want us working from home all the time. That's the much more difficult uh, question. And quite frankly, I haven't found a great answer for that. There's another fairness question too, about who goes back and who doesn't have to. And so what we notice is that those who have to go back tend to be administrative staff or more junior staff, perhaps because they may be client facing or or direct service oriented. Whereas those who have jobs that can be done remotely, people are kind of continuing. Are there legitimate concerns of fairness on that front? Well, you know, there's the legal answer, which is probably not. And then there's the moral HR answer. I think that when you have a good workplace, it's a community. And I really have a problem where the most affluent, the most privileged in that community don't show up and don't show physical solidarity with others in the community. I just don't know how long you can keep that community. Certainly as a law firm, it's been made very clear to us is that old geezers like myself, and I am one that wants to get back into the office. I want to make it clear. Like I, I need the psychological separation. I think it's more of a psych. I have lots of rooms. It's not a room issue. I have dealt with my infrastructure issues, but it's still the psychological separation between work and home and play. I really need it. And I haven't had it for 18 months. And it has really impacted me. And so for that reason, I want to go back in the office. But I also want to go back because I like my junior employees and my entry level employees and my admin employees, and they are great people. And I want to show solidarity. So those of you who are leaders here, I think you're going to have to show some leadership. And maybe think about how we can make the workplace a bit of fun. My tip, I'm hosting a Diwali party at Gowling's Waterloo. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. Well, if you're staying at home, I'm sorry, you're not getting homemade samosas and sweets. So there you go. Now there's an incentive. I love that answer. I I think that's the, the right answer and it may not be legally binding, but it's absolutely how you create a good workplace. There's still a bunch of questions. We're gonna we're gonna try to race through because some of them are quick yes and no's and they're good sharp answers that people want to take away. Should staff with written medical exceptions after their first dose be taking the, the rapid test as well? How, how often yeah. should those be taken? I've heard differing views. I'm not an infectious disease doctor. I'm the South Asian immigrant kid that failed and didn't become a doctor. Um, but uh, 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 What a failure. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's a good question for your public health because there might be differing risks in different places. But I've heard two times, I've heard three times a week in certain sectors, uh, but those are high risk sectors. Two times seems to be very common. Here's a question from the point of view of workers' rights. So what are the workers' rights to refuse to return to the office? The right to refuse unsafe work, I guess, if safety measures at the workplace do not meet their personal standards uh, and the levels of risk that they feel. All right. So I want to divide that. And I think that's a great question. I want to divide that into two questions. So first of all, under all of our occupational health and safety If somebody doesn't want to come to work and we say you have to come to work, it's a work refusal. And we know that there's a process in each province of how to deal with the work refusal. And essentially you review the issues and see if there's any legitimacy and you do it with an open mind, right? Like do it with an open mind, not a reflexive no. And if you decide, well, I don't think it's fair, they can still refuse to work. And ultimately the Ministry of Labor's inspector will come and check. And I have to tell you, the Ministry of Labor in general has been supporting employers. So subjective, hypersensitive fears have not been supported by the Ministry of Labor. That goes to the legal answer. But let's talk about somebody who has anxieties for legitimate reasons, a high risk, compromised spouse or child. We had a lot of those. You know, work with that employee. Maybe you give them a bit more latitude than you would ordinarily because we are afraid and we're afraid because we've seen 27,000 Canadians die. That's a lot. And if you think that there is, you know, five, six, 10 people for each of those, there's who are mourning that person who are impacted. There's a lot of our family and friends who are impacted either by the death or an illness and they're afraid. So we just need to be a little compassionate and patient. And this is the sector that does it, right? You know, Elizabeth, if there's ever a sector that is built or equipped to be compassionate with vulnerable people, this is the sector. I agree. If staff are moving to a remote role, do we have to update their employment contract for tax return implications? Generally, it's a good idea to review your contract every so often. In general, you should be updating your employment agreement when roles changes significantly. So that's just a general good hygiene, best practices. But I do think you should, and especially if they are moving out of the province, you absolutely have to, because there's a different tax regime as soon as you move to Alberta or BC. And if they're moving out of the country, you should be on the blower with your accountant. So your lawyer is your best friend, your accountant is your next best friend, because your accountant will tell you, well, that will that trigger some kind of tax remittance obligations to a foreign jurisdiction? And do you really want to do that? It's a pain in the butt. But anyway, I know workers who've done it and I know companies who've managed it. It's just taken a little bit of research to do it right. Right. One one throwaway is worry about insurance coverage. That was my next question. And it's the next question in in the chat. There we go. Insurance that you buy, you know, like your group insurance has terms that nobody reads about, about limitations, about being away from the jurisdiction. So there will be limits on out of country and out of province coverage. So if somebody's going to move out of the country, I'm not saying you have to pay for it, but you don't want your valued employee who says, you know what, I, I've always wanted to go back to India for you know a couple of months and work from home. Can, can you accommodate that to find out that he or she has no insurance? So 
make sure if they're moving out of the province that you worry about insurance because that could really impact your employee. An accommodation question. I think you might have touched on this a bit in your presentation, but just to, to come back to it, is the organization required to provide staff with printers, paper, ink, if they're working remotely? How much are you supposed to be sending them stuff to do what they're well, doing? I think that's a conversation, right? I think if you're going to make the remote workplace a semi-permanent arrangement, then I think the work, the employer is going to have to bear the budget of making it so they're effective at home. And you do not want to handicap your employee because you weren't prepared to buy a 150 buck printer. Like I'm not saying you're buying the $2,000 HP high speed color printer that spits out a thousand pages an hour, but you know, maybe you can get the $99 Canon or something and let them expense it through. And you need to work with your IT because you want to make sure that there's a certain quality and consistency throughout the system. Printers can be a source of loss of confidentiality and privacy. So you have to think a little bit of this with the IT people as to what are best practices. That was just terrific. You've covered so much territory, so many good ideas, and just insightful, wise, and everything that we like to get out of a five good ideas session. So thank you, Nina. Thank you for listening to Five Good Ideas with Nina Gupta. We link to the five good ideas and Nina's bonus ideas, resources, and a full transcript of the session in our show notes. You can find all of our Five Good Ideas sessions from past seasons on the Maytree website at maytree.com forward slash five dash good dash ideas. And you can subscribe to the Five Good Ideas podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time. <laughs>